Hey everybody, it's Chris. If you're a sports fan like me, or you're just a fan of a great story, you gotta check out Press Box Access, a sports history podcast hosted by Todd Jones. Todd sits down with fellow sports writers who experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past 50 years, and they share some of the stories behind the stories, some of which they've only told to each other. What I personally love are the wild stories that you might not hear so much about on SportsCenter over the years. Like when Indiana-based sports journalist Bob Kravitz recounts the time Bobby Knight showed up naked to an office meeting with him and then banned him from the Hoosiers' locker room for the next three years because Bob wrote a story he didn't like. Or when Alexander Wolfe tells a story about going out on the town in Chicago with Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra in the middle of a Bulls playoff series. Or when Dan Wetzel talks about what it was like to be in the media room when Temple basketball coach John Chaney stormed into UMass coach John Calipari's press conference after a game and threatened to kill him. These wild and fun stories, paired with stories about real sports greatness, you know, like the 1970s Steelers being the greatest NFL dynasty ever, or the legendary rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, and even the impact of protests for social justice issues in sports, make Pressbox Access a show you should check out. Pressbox Access is part of the Evergreen Podcast family, and it's available all the places you get your pods, and you can also find Pressbox Access on YouTube. Go check it out. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Synth pioneer Gary Newman was overwhelmingly bashed by critics upon his surge to the top of the UK charts in the early 80s. Music writers may not have been ready for Newman's futuristic sound, but fans surely were. By the time he decided to take a hiatus from touring, he was doing multiple nights at Wembley Arena, not to mention opening doors for acts such as the Human League, Depeche Mode, and OMD. This week, we're joined by artist Matt Gondek to dive into all things Newman, especially his new wave classic, Cars. Welcome to the show. You are here today to talk about Gary Newman and his 1979-1980 hit Cars, which, as a visual artist yourself, I think this was a pretty good choice to have you on because there's more to Gary's whole vibe that it, it extends beyond just the music itself. So there's some things that I'd like to talk to you about with that. But before we even started recording, you complimented, or I don't know, I guess that was a compliment. My Pits- it was. My Pittsburgh accent, because even though you've been in LA for eight years, uh, you are a native of Pittsburgh. You're a Pittsburgh native. Well, at some point you lived in Pittsburgh, right? Because you said you're originally from Central PA somewhere. Is that right? Yeah, I'm from Central PA. I moved to Pittsburgh proper in the year 2000. I went to a tech school. Okay. And I lived there from 2000 until... God, eight years ago. I'm, I'm terrible with math, but I was in Pittsburgh for a long time. Right. Yeah. So close enough. I'm like an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh. You get up. it. You get it. Yeah. Uh, you get the Pittsburgh accent, but you don't necessarily have it because you didn't grow up there. <laughs> so, so totally. I don't have it. Yeah. You don't have it. You have, you have no, no accent that I can recognize. Unlike Matt has this weird Philadelphia. <laughs> what is it? Delco, Delco accent. accent. It's the, yeah. it's the Delco accent. It's, it's strange, but, but yes, a lot of accents on here. So we appreciate you noticing that. And I want to put a little, little disclaimer on this episode for anyone listening in the UK. We apologize. We know that Gary Newman is not a one hit wonder in the UK, but he is 
actually a one hit wonder here in the United States. And uh, I just think this guy's interesting as hell. I don't know, Matt. I don't know if you just chose Gary Newman because you saw the list of what was available or if you had a certain affinity for Gary Newman coming into this. I have a certain affinity for this song. I, I mean, everybody knows this song, right? Mm -hmm. But about a year and a half ago, it really started burrowing into my head. And uh, at, at that point, I kind of did a little bit of a deep dive. And yeah, I, I did know that he was only a one-hit wonder in the States. He's, he's massive in England. But yeah. I, I just love this song, and I love who he is and where, like, how he was in a punk band that transitioned and how weird he was and who he is now compared to... You go and you watch the Cars music video, and you're like, yeah, that's Gary Newman. But now, like, he would open for Korn. And it's like, it's, he's, he's amazing. And his name, I don't know, I just love him. It's great. Yeah, it's very interesting story. I really took the deepest dive into Gary Newman over the last couple of days. And his story is kind of unlike anyone that we've had on here before. First of all, he's a freaking pioneer of electronic yeah, music. Yeah. I was, yeah. was going to say, I feel like we've really done like this intro to new wave trifecta over the last month between jumping from the Buggles into Thomas Dolby into into now Gary Newman. Like we really hit probably the three biggest people of the late seventies, early eighties to like push what the synthesizer and what new wave music would actually be mm -hmm. uh, into such a new direction. And I think we did them in almost the exact order that the singles were, were released yeah. too weirdly. <laughs> yeah. I like it. And this guy is super interesting because, uh, you know, I, I actually watched an entire documentary called Resurrection on Gary Newman, which had everybody from Dave Grohl and um, Trent Reznor, obviously. Trent Reznor would be influenced by Gary Newman. Uh, lots of electronic music people. And Hans Zimmer was on it. Uh, and you really got to see Gary's personality. And one thing I thought was really interesting is from a, a really young age, at first, he did pretty good in school, but then he started doing progressively worse and worse. And then he was uh, diagnosed with Asperger's. He had, they realized he had Asperger's, and he kind of got to a point where he got kicked out of school. And they had him on, um, whoever his doctor was, had him on Valium and something else, which kind of put him, he said it kind of put him in a, in a haze, in a fog. And I thought that was pretty interesting because his delivery, like when you watch the music video for Cars, you see this almost robotic. That that was his thing. He's very almost like a robot. And they, when they, I yeah. saw him described as an androgynous android in the way that he would <laughs> yeah. perform, and I am like, that's perfect. That's exactly yeah. what it is. That that music video, Matt. I don't know if you watched the music video for Cars. Both Matts. I don't know if you watched the music video for Cars. It is almost like a precursor to, it looks like the robot version. I mean, the futuristic version of a Chuck E. Cheese band playing, playing the music. It is so robotic, except for the drummer who's kind of animated, but it's a very strange video. And you could see this is why I was bringing it back around to Matt, Matt Gondek, that is, uh, that how, what, a big part the visual element played and the futuristic sort of uh, essence to uh, Gary Newman played in his whole thing, in this being a hit. I think it, the song's great. Don't get me wrong. The song's great. But he definitely had a, had a, a futuristic look that pushed him to the forefront as well. Yeah, you know, referencing the Cars video, how I, I was doing some research myself and I read that someone wrote that he almost looks like in the video, he almost looks like you inter he was speaking to someone else and you interrupted him. Cause he's just staring <laughs> at the camera. Like, who are you? He does that live. Like there's videos of him playing that song back then live and all the weird mannerisms and, and how he kind of will sing a little bit and stare off into space. Like he did all that live as well. Right. Just very, very interesting guy. It was great. Like it wasn't and I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but especially what you said about the Asperger's, it wasn't an act. Like he was just no. that way. And it was perfect timing for like this futuristic thing. He was into, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the author, but you know, uh, the guy did Blade Runner, the guy that did Total Recall, uh -huh. the actual author. He was really into all that. Philip K. Dick. Yes, thank you, Philip K. Dick. So like, he was just like this, he just was this fully formed package of like this futuristic guy with Asperger's that 
when his music broke out of like this futuristic sound, he was this detached, like humanoid person. <laughs> and it was the perfect person to deliver this message, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And being this pioneer and being on the forefront of you using synthesizers in your music, he was torn apart by critics. I don't know if you guys knew this, but it was every all the all the UK enemy and oh, there were a couple other ones, but just the worst reviews you'll ever see. Dave Grohl talked about that in the documentary. He he was Dave Grohl was basically like fuck those guys. Like you know, Gary Newman was a a pioneer, and you know, so many people looked down on the synthesizer. They a lot of people didn't want to call it an instrument. They called it a machine, but. I think that's so silly. I recently, I think I just referenced this on a, another episode recently, but that Bjork was talking about how you, it's what you bring as a human to that instrument that that you can express emotion through. It doesn't matter what it is. Like, why is the guitar any better than a synthesizer if you can express your emotion through it and put put the human element into it? So I just... People weren't ready for it yet, and Gary Newman, being on such the forefront of it, really received a lot of the brunt of the hit of that that later acts like, I don't know, OMD and, you know, everyone that followed. I was going to say, yeah. everyone that followed in his steps started to outsell him. The list that I saw was like Human League, Duran yeah. Duran, Depeche Mode, and OMD, I feel like, is the one that hurts the most because he... He he was the one that found them and brought them as his opening act. And then oh. they blew up so right. much bigger than him. And then he was the opener for them on on shows. I'm sure something that Chris knows nothing about is never in the history of Punchline. <laughs> what, what? Never? Have we taken bands on tour and they not not taken us back on tour when they got huge? No, I wouldn't know anything about that one. But uh, yeah, it's it's really, really interesting. And I, I have... But the first tangent that I want to get into that I thought I was like, whoa, was uh, so, you know, his debut solo album. Now, the first two albums he released were under the name Tubeway Army, right? Is that what it was called? Yeah. Tubeway Army. Mm -hmm. But they were basically just his albums. But he, but he I think he, he had a band playing with them. But I mean, they were basically Gary Newman albums. But his actual debut solo album, The Pleasure Principle that Cars is from, which came out in 1979, Top the UK albums chart. But then I was thinking to myself, I'm like, Pleasure Principle. Janet Jackson had a song called Pleasure Principle later on. And I was like, what? It, it, did she like sample Gary Newman in that? Or was she a Gary Newman fan or something? So I looked into it. And yes, Pleasure Principle, great Janet Jackson song. Anyone who listens to this show knows I'm a big Janet head. Love Janet. Uh, it's on her Control album. I have that on vinyl. <laughs> it came out in 1986. And actually, the Pleasure Principle... Do, do let, me, let me start by saying this. Either Matt, do you guys know what the Pleasure Principle is? No. No. Okay. So I hadn't heard that term before, but it's actually in Freudian psychoanalysis. It's the instinctive seeking of pleasure and avoiding pain to satisfy biological and psychological needs. So when you're a little kid or when you're a baby, you are purely on the pleasure principle. I want to eat. I want to, you know, I need a drink. I need to eat. You only want pleasure. And even if you're a kid, you're bored. I want something to do. I want pleasure. Whereas when you get older, the contrast to the pleasure principle, the counterpart to it is the concept of the reality principle, which describes the capacity to de deter gratification of a desire when circumstantial reality disallows the immediate gratification of it. I mean, that's just a fancy way to say like you grow up and you realize you can't have everything you want the second you want it. And I started thinking about that a lot in, in, you know, I read deeper into it and said like maturity is learning to endure the pain of deferred gratification. That's just what being a human, what growing up is. Freud argued that an ego thus educated has become reasonable. It no longer lets itself be governed by, by the pleasure principle, but obeys the reality principle, which also at bottom seeks to obtain pleasure, but pleasure, which is, you know, through taking account of reality, even though pleasure is postponed and diminished. Whatever. Once again, fancy, fancy words for a, a real common sense sort of thing. But I was thinking to myself, man, think about if you were super rich, 
if you were a billionaire or something, do you just live your life in a constant state of pleasure principle? And then at some point, I mean, it probably has to happen so fast. The pleasure doesn't, you don't get the pleasure from those things anymore because you just have them all the time, right? There was a quote that I remember hearing years ago on an episode of Geekscape, actually. It was Jonathan was talking to Scott from Real Big Fish. And he was like, look, when you give a kid a what feels like a bottomless pit of money, like after you've bought every video game system you've ever wanted and like all the rare comic books you wanted and it still feels like there's more money than you know what to do with. He's like, you just start getting dangerous. <laughs> I think that that's like that same kind of idea of like, you just, yeah, I guess, you know, the the family from succession, whatever yeah. they want, they can just go and do it. But right. like eventually there has to be a burnout at well, a certain that's, point. That's a good comparison because of it because yeah, if you're a billionaire, you could have anything you want, but on that show, that's what they're illustrating, that they just want the the company. They just want the power, you know, whatever it takes to, to get that. And I just thought that was really a side tangent. It's just that Gary Newman's album is called The Pleasure Principle. And Matt, that's a pretty good comparison to the Real Big Fish thing because Gary Newman, when he blew up this huge, he was 20, 21 years old. So he hasn't really struggled. He he recorded his first three albums like with within like a year. He made like three albums in the first year. And on the third album, he has this hit Cars and a bunch of hits in the UK. And he's playing Wembley. He decides to retire touring for what I think was a couple weeks well, ultimately, but like that's well, <laughs> like, what's crazy about that is that was the main theme of the documentary was that he reached that level at such a young age so quickly that then he spent his whole life trying to get back there. Is it dark? Like the documentary, like, like where, where it goes? Him trying to climb back up. Is that, is that like a dark point in his life? Uh, yeah, he, he, it definitely gets dark. And I guess, a qu Matt, gone decade, let me ask you this. Would you take having massive success at a young age and then feeling like you could never get back there? Or would you rather constantly be on a upward trajectory, even if it's minimal things at a time? Minimal trajectory for sure. Yeah. That's, I mean, like, imagine, imagine having everything, you know, when you're 20 and then what, what else are you going to do with your life other than chase it again? Like, yeah. it's the same thing with drug addicts. You chase something you can't, you, the first time you do drugs, it, you feel a certain way and you'll never get back there. And you're always just chasing the same sensation, but you'll never get it again. I'm sure it's a, kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. I'd rather have the long, long upward trajectory, I think. Yeah. I mean, when I hear stories like Gary Newman's, you know, it makes me think, you know, about my own life trajectory or whatever. Some, you know, it's easy to get bummed. You compare yourself to people around you and, and whatever. But as long as you are still, you know, driving towards something and, and making progress on that, that feels good when you reach those levels and, and it makes sense and you've paid your dues. Whereas, you know, this, this Gary New Newman thing, I mean, it's unfortunate for him and we'll get to like, I think he's a, He's a pioneer. He's a talented artist, but it came fast for him. But I think, so So let's say the reverse of that though, right? Like, I agree with you that it's like, man, when you're 20 and you've peaked and it's 1980, like that sucks. Like that sucks hard. And especially like you said, the critics are just like not even getting what you're doing. They, they not only just don't get it, they are actively writing articles about how awful it is, what yeah. you're doing. And, and, but then- you know, you have this weird redemption when you get into like the early 90s where industrial starts to well, explode. Right. And all of these artists who are like the biggest artists in music are citing you specifically as like the guy. Well, <laughs> like, did you look at the lineup on the tribute album that they put out? Well, dude, the crazy part about that is I, if you guys, I'm assuming, obviously, you guys have pro probably both seen Walk Hard, you know, the Dewey Cox story. Yeah. So good. Yeah. But, you know, he goes through that whole thing where he's trying all these different types of music. He gets to the point where he's kind of like, I guess they're kind of making fun of Brian Wilson, where he's in the studio and he has all the, the weird instruments and everything. And he just goes down this crazy path. Well, Gary Newman kind of did that throughout the whole 80s after his peak Every album was selling less and less and he was getting more and more avant-garde. He was just... And, and, by his own admission, every album was getting worse and worse until 
1992, he released this album called Machine and Soul. And the cover of it, he it's night. So keep in mind, it's 1992. It doesn't look like Gary Newman. It looks like a cheesy 90s like pop guy on the cover of it. And that's when he said he completely lost himself. He was at his lowest. He said his that's his worst album. And that is when he met his wife, Gemma, who had been a fan of him forever. She met him at his lowest point and she introduced him to industrial music, which he was not familiar with. And so now you have bands like Nine Inch Nails, Trent Reznor. Trent Reznor, a huge influence on him was Gary Newman. And, you know, Gary Newman didn't even know Nine Inch Nails. And now Gary Newman is influenced by Nine Inch Nails. You know, it's crazy <laughs> how that went full circle. And then, you know, you see in the documentary, they even like play shows together. He comes out on stage during Nine Inch Nails. But um, it was at that moment that like you were like you were saying, Matt Gondek, that, you know, that he became, you know, I don't know if it's new metal, but it's definitely like. He, he sounds to me like Nine Inch Nails light. And I yeah. want to preface that by saying Nine Inch Nails is my favorite band yeah. And anyone listening, a little treat, you go on YouTube, it's it's Nine Inch Nails tw- 2009 tour. Uh, Gary Newman comes out, they do a car cover, yeah. and it's it's him and Trent, and it's it's incredible. It's right. so fucking good. Right. But yeah, he sounds like, Gary Newman now sounds like Nine Inch Nails light to me, mm-hmm. which is great. I love it. Yeah, it's cool. I, I listen to a lot of it, <laughs> and it's definitely way different than the early 80s. Did you watch any of the live performances of him now, like say 2023? Like you watch, if you, if you watch the cars video, then you immediately watch a Gary Newman live <laughs> from 2023. First of all, this guy, he's like 68, 67 at this point. He looks like an extra from the movie Mad Max now. Like that's his whole <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. And he, he has a band now that like, it's these two bald dudes. Like they look like they're in Mudvayne or something. It's it's crazy. Yeah, it's it's he took such a, a hard like left turn in his career, but I think he it, it, what helped him keep going. First, the bad news: SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos, but it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. I'm not going to lie here. I've become a factor fanatic lately. I'm a busy guy, and getting to eat restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat in two minutes has been amazing. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You have 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. I've been spreading the word to everyone I know, not just here on the podcast, but in person as well. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. You get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And the math doesn't lie. Factor is less expensive than takeout. Plus, considering every meal is dietitian approved, it's also nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today by heading to factormeals.com slash one hit 50 and use the code one hit 50 to get 50% off. That's code one hit 50. The words one hit and the number 50 that is at factormeals.com slash one hit 50 to get 50% off. 921 Donkey Lane is a magical apartment complex that contains immense power but lacks intelligent inhabitants. What is happening? I'm getting texts. Why are we getting a lot of texts? People found out what we did. Oh, dividing Mike Myers into an infinite amount of tiny Mike Myers. Listen to 91 Donkey Lane for free on Spotify or your favorite podcasting app. More at 91donkeylane.com. See you there, you donkeys. I'm going to age myself because the first time I even heard the song Cars wasn't by Gary Newman. It was the Fear Factory cover. Oh, wow. that's such a good cover. <laughs> we listened to it yesterday. We were doing like all the different covers and oh my God, it's so good. 
Uh, it's a Frank Zappa covered some of his songs. Like it, the the influences are insane, and that's like the Chris. I want to just run down real quick a few of the artists that showed up in 1997. They put out a Gary Newman tribute album, and it featured covers from Gravity Kills. Totally makes sense that Gravity Kills would be into Gary Newman. EMF, who we've talked about on this oh! show before. <laughs> Jesus Jones, who I'm sure we'll get to one of these days. Yeah. The Magnetic Fields. Okay. Republica, who we'll definitely talk about one day on here. But the one that blew me away was the lead singer of Blur and Matt Sharp from Weezer collaborated together on a song nice. for that album as well, which it's like two of my like 90s worlds just like colliding into <laughs> each other. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of those people, I mean, think about, you said Matt Sharp, think about Weezer and how they used the Moog, you know? And, well, even 97, yeah. we're at the start of the rentals. Right. You know what I mean? Like the rentals was all So Moog. Gary Newman influenced, <laughs> like, are you kidding? Uh, and yeah. Matt asked about, have I seen a, a recent performance? I saw a performance from... The day we're recording this, three days ago, he played he played at um, Cruel World Festival. Here in with, L.A., yeah. Yeah, with Susie yeah. and the Banshees played, right? And it was the one that yeah, got, like, yeah, rained exactly. out or something the first day. But, yeah. yeah they, had to, they had to shut it down. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Yeah, I watched it's him amazing. play. It's amazing. Yeah, Can I, I also point out something? Great. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, sorry. Uh, he looks like you were saying. I think he looks great. He doesn't look like he an does. older guy. I mean, yeah, he has some funny, like, face makeup on and he kind of does look pretty new metalish, pretty industrial, but it, it, you know, he's doing his thing and, and doing well. I, I saw that even some of his newer albums charted well in the UK and stuff. Yeah. He has, he has a new album out that did really well. It's like a new single. Oh my God. I think it's called in, I might be called insider. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's doing really well. I also want to point out one other thing and ask you if this was pointed out in the documentary, you know, back when he first came out with cars and everything, even though the critics panned him, from everything I've heard, if you were just a kid at that time, the first time, a lot of these people that I'm, I'm like researching Gary about all this stuff, the first time they heard Cars, it was like literally they never heard anything like that before. Yeah. And how many times in your life have you seen or heard something that you're like, this is completely new to me? Right. And a lot of a lot of the people that like were kids at the time were like, that's what Cars was to them. Like there were electronic bands at that time, but they were kind of obscure. Gary was the first guy that kind of used those those instruments to make pop music and like it was more mainstream so like the average person for the first time ever heard computer music and it blew everybody's mind and whether or not it was good or bad like if you listen to that album now pleasure principle it's super tame and kind of basic mm -hmm. but you have to look at it through the lens of like never ever even knowing you can make music with with computers it's incredible right, right. yeah well and chris i'm sure you if you stumbled upon this factoid i'm sure you love to hear it that you know, most people maybe write a song using a piano or using a guitar, but he's he's gone on the record to say, nope, he wrote this song with just a bass in his hands Love that. And, and built the song around the bass. <laughs> yeah, uh, they he, and he actually had said that he wrote this with the intentions of it being a pop song. He actually thinks it's a very mediocre average song in, in the grand scheme of things. But he said, like, this was the first time I'd ever written a song with the attention of maybe I can write a hit single. Well. I think that Matt's point about it, people hadn't heard this before. I, when you said that, Matt, I was thinking, has there been anything in my life where I've been like, what is this? I haven't heard the this before. The, well, the for iPhone? Me, for me, it was iPhone and the Nintendo 64 were the two things in my life. I was like, what are these things? That, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, well, if we're going beyond music, I, I'll never forget the first time I saw a Sega Genesis. Went to a friend's birthday go. party and, it, and his parents had a big screen TV. And he had got a Sega Genesis, and I saw Sonic the Hedgehog for the first time. And I was like, what is that? That is crazy. Yeah. That's so. But music-wise, I think the closest thing that I could think of to it where I'm like, I haven't heard this before, would probably be in the 90s when I first heard ska music, when I first heard Operation Ivy, when I first heard, yeah. you know, Less Than Jake or Real Big Fish or whoever. Like, I was like, what is this? <laughs> I haven't heard this before. I think for me, musically, it would be hearing the streets for the first time. Oh, yeah. I was like, what even is this? And then if we can go outside of music, it would be my, my cousin and I were spending the night at my grandfather's house. And he had HBO and they were playing a movie called Freaked. And I remember we watched that movie and it 
shattered my brain. If the people who've seen Freak know exactly what I'm talking about. For the people who haven't, it is a film written, directed, and starring Alex Winter, uh, Bill from the Bill and Ted movies. Okay. And it is just, it was written to be a butthole surfers movie originally. And it's just about a guy who goes and ends up being mutated into a freak for a freak show ran by Randy Quaid. And it's like, Mr. T plays the bearded lady in it. Like Keanu Reeves plays Ortiz, the dog boy. Like it is the most off the wall shit you'll ever see, but it's screaming mad George doing everything. And like screaming mad George is arguably one of the most underrated, like special effects guys. Like everyone thinks of Tom Savini, but like screaming mad George is the guy who did shit like Freddy Krueger turning a woman into a cockroach. Like he's that dude who can just make the most, surrealistic shit happen practically in a movie. So watching a 90 minute movie where every single second is the most bizarre practical effects I've ever witnessed in my life. I remember being like 10 being like, I will never see another thing that breaks my brain the way that this, this visual aesthetic has broken my brain right now. <laughs> I, I'm I've never heard of that movie. I oh my God. See it. Check it, check it out. It's on Tubi. It might be on Tubi. Okay. It might be on Tubi. <laughs> Everything's on Tubi. As far as taking it back to Gary Newman here, did you guys listen to his other hit from that era, Our Friends Electric? Do you guys... So good. It's yes. really good. so weird, though. Did Dude. you did you look into the lyrics of what it's about? It's about re like replicants, like robots, like the people in our lives are robots and they're coming to help us and like for everything. It's great. Yeah. Right. But it's dude, weird. I mean, it even to, to throw it back to Philip K. Dick, I mean, the original title of Blade Runner was do androids dream of electric sheep. Like the name just feels like part of yeah. that Phil, Di Phil K. Dick uh, aesthetic anyway. Well, Mm -hmm. I just meant as far as that was a number one song for in multiple weeks in the UK. <laughs> it is such look, I think it's cool and it's weird as hell. There are parts that are like spoken word in it. It's really kind of hard to follow the melody. It sounds futuristic and weird, but a number one hit. Like we're talking like Well, think about it. It wasn't David Bowie huge at that point. Yeah. You, you I mean like you get the Bowie-ness from him, but then like I'm sure people were kind of burnt out with Bowie at that point and they're looking for the next thing and I think that song is a nice transition into what's new, but I, I also like David Bowie. Right. Like it's it weird, and there are the spoken parts. Did you know David Bowie felt threatened by Gary Newman when he came out? Really? I David believe Bowie, it. David Bowie <laughs> thought that Gary Newman was like copying him, which if you if you think of that, and then like you go back and listen, and you look at a Gary Newman, especially the Cars video, for example, like right. it's kind of glam, and it's kind of androgynous, and kind of weird. I completely could see why Bowie thought that like Gary was ripping him off. Yeah. I didn't think of the Bowie comparison at all, but it makes a lot of sense. Uh, now that you say that his whole, yeah, his whole thing, his whole look uh, for sure. Even if the music was a, a little bit different uh, and uh, Hey, something else that I thought about that I, when I was researching this, you know, during his sort of whatever you want to call it downhill after the big hits, uh, throughout that whole decade. At some point, he collaborated on an album with Roger from Queen, was on one of his yeah, albums. Yeah, no, so yeah, his I think it was his second or his third album, the musicians on it were Roger Taylor from Queen and uh, Mick and Rob from the band Models were like his backup bands. I thought that was crazy because wasn't it just a few years earlier that Queen was talking shit on synths? Didn't we, didn't we talk about that recently where we were like, why would Queen talk shit on synthesizers? Didn't they, didn't later, wasn't that like a big part of some like Freddie Mercury stuff later on? Uh, I think maybe they were just, they probably would have taken that back. I remember maybe it was on the Buggles episode we talked about that. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. But Matt, I, I didn't look this up, but what was going on in the charts at the this time? Is this is a weird charts. Usually I know the songs. Okay. I did not know a lot of these songs. Now- I'm on the younger end. I was an 85 baby. This was five years before I existed. Uh, but this song peaked at number nine on June 7th, 1980. Uh, the number one song we all know, it was Lips Incorporated's Funky Town. Okay. Uh, so we still are in the disco era a little bit there. Yeah. The rest of the top 10, um, Elton John was at number 10 with Little Janine. Okay. I don't know that one <laughs> uh, yeah i kind of don't either i i think maybe i've heard the name of that song number eight was linda ronstadt with hurt so bad okay 
Number seven was Bob Seeger against the wind. Oh, yeah, of course. Now, here's the ones I definitely know. Number six was Bette Midler's The Rose. Okay. Lovely ballad. Number five was Blondie's Call Me. Yeah, that's his, that song was number one on the day I was born. That, that, was, <laughs> that was my number one. Uh, number four was Kenny Rogers featuring Kim Carnes with oh. Don't Fall in Love with a Dream. Okay. Uh, number three was Ambrosia with The Biggest Part of Me. Oh, that's a good one. You know that one? <laughs> I don't. I, I have no idea what that is. Oh, Ambrosia. Yeah. Look, Ambrosia has that How Much I Feel. How much I feel, feel for you, baby. You know that one? How much I, I, I do. Want... It's just an amazing song. You got to listen to How Much I Feel sometime because it's like this really pretty chorus, but all the verses are about... This guy's in a relationship, or I think mar- he's married, and he's having dreams about some other woman. <laughs> and that's, it's just dreams about cheating on his wife, and then it was how, how much I feel. And it's like, you're supposed to sympathize with him, I, I guess, but it's just part of that whole Yacht Rock thing that like where it's problems for guys probably dressed all in white on a boat in 1980 or something. <laughs> like very specific problems, but... Anyway. Gotcha. And then the number two hit was Paul McCartney and Wings with Coming Up Live. Okay. Right. Coming Up, the live version. It's a, <laughs> it's, it is a strange top 10 because it's not that a is lot a of... really wild top 10 for sure. Yeah. So can we talk about the construction of the song Cars? Because this was something I never thought about until I was listening to it and reading about it. Uh, so I'm going to pull this directly from the wiki. It says Cars is based on two musical sections, a verse, then an instrumental break to the bridge. Uh, the recording features the conventional rock rhythm section of bass and drums, but the rest of the instruments are completely synthesizers. The bridge section also includes a tambourine part. The song becomes an instrumental from the one minute and 30 second point until its conclusion, oh, which yeah. I never thought about that. But it it does. The verses are just done after a minute and a half of the song. And the rest is I just was... an instrumental synth piece. Could you imagine playing that song live and he just has to kind of stand there? <laughs> if you watch if you watch the video, he really goes off in that tambourine because he has nothing else to do. The tam there's no car in the in the music video for cars, by the way. But right. it's all tambour <laughs> there's so much of him holding the tambourine, then the tambourine spinning around and he's in the tambourine yep. for a while. Cause what else does he have to do? Like, could you imagine having to play that live? It's probably terrible for him. Yeah. yeah. It's You it's, know what's so funny? You brought up that that part in the music video is that yes, it's a tambourine where he's on a green screen and he is in the middle of a tambourine playing a tambourine it's amazing and it is amazing and that dude this is okay it only hit number nine in the united states but it's a number one song let's stress that a number one song in the uk where it's a complete instrumental after a minute and a half into the song that is crazy that is wild and uh, i think it's part of you know, on that documentary, once again, I'll bring it back to that. He talks about how he has a he has a real hang up about like being called retro and he won't do any of those like retro shows like this thing. He just played a cruel world. I don't think it was marketed like that. It was marketed. No, it was some new bands as well. Right. But he won't yeah. do one of those like, oh, it's all these one hit wonders from the 80s. He won't do that. He said he hates nostalgia. And he said like. He wrote. He said, "I wrote Cars five lifetimes ago. Who gives a fuck?" <laughs> that's what he said on <laughs> on the thing. And his wife is like, "But you got to realize that, like, that's, you know, it's not your whole career, but it is part of it." He's like, "I don't care about that song." <laughs> so <laughs> I think, I think you got to kind of have a middle ground on that. Yes, I don't want to. I wouldn't want to just be known for the one song and that's it. But at the same time, like, you gotta own the song that the most people know too. I think there's, there's a, a fine line there of, uh, you know, making the people happy and also being happy yourself, you know? Totally. Yeah. There was, there was a long point while he was playing live for years and years, he wouldn't play the song at all. Mm-hmm. And it was only, I think in the last 10 years, it kind of came back. He's like, he kind of realized what that did for him. And he kind of, he went full circle with, it. and he plays it now, but for a long time, he kind of just let it alone. It's kind of like, like creep by Radiohead. They don't play that either. I don't right. Think. Did, he do like a his him now version of it because his yeah, voice is even different now. It's all meddled out now. If you yeah. if you watch like any of the live videos, it's 
I mean, his all his even like the whole album Pleasure Prince Pleasure Principle. If he plays any of those songs, it's very metal now. Right. So he updated a lot of his old stuff. It's like when Vanilla Ice came back and did the <laughs> and did the new metal version of Ice Ice Baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but hey, man, this guy seemed to influence a lot of people that I really love. I mean, you said Nine Inch Nails is your favorite band growing up. I don't know if they're my favorite band ever now but they they were my i had i brought this up recently uh when we had ali on the show i i had like 39 inch nails t-shirts when i was in high school <laughs> they were my favorite band and i kind of lost I, I guess i kind of just lost touch maybe after maybe one album after the downward spiral or something but i definitely mm-hmm. think that you know one of the most prolific artists of our time trent Reznor, was heavily influenced by gary newman as Apparently, were a lot of other people, um, and you know, when it comes to, we're, we're going to have to make that thunder or blunder decision here. <laughs> uh, it, it would be hard to go blunder on Gary Newman. I don't know. Either you guys going to go blunder on this guy? Nah. No. no iconic, so. dude. He's iconic. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do that, and I think there's a lot of '80s artists that owe their career to what you know, Gary Newman broke open the door towards like we referenced earlier human league omd i mean everybody it's kind of like everybody in the early to to mid 80s and the world of pop uh whether they were directly influenced or just um you know had the door open for them you know gary newman was right there at the forefront of it yeah i and i think the other thing that's worth mentioning is like you know this song is after uh, video killed the radio star, which we had already talked about. But I think the other big difference is like where we talked about, you know, she blinded me with science and video killed the radio star, which she blinded me with science was after cars. But like video killed the radio star is such a poppy song. This, mm-hmm. this, I feel like really showed how dark you could get with the sense. Like even, even it just being a, a weird song where he's talking about cars and it's written with the intentions of it being a pop single like it doesn't shock me that a band like fear factory would cover this because it sounds that baseline is sinister sounding like it is a very dark tone i think that maybe that's also why people turned on it. it's one thing when you're using the synth for like happy songs but to like kind of go to the basiest part of it uh oh. hey. no one had done that yet you know what I mean? you know like, i'm glad you said that matt because i would have forgot to drop this little fact I learned from the documentary, which I thought was one of the weirdest things that I had heard. So apparently when Gary was growing up, he lived near an airport and the planes would fly overhead and he loved watching them fly overhead and hearing them go. And he talked about how the sound, the, the, the deep, bass sound of the plane fly, flying overhead that really resonated with him and that's what made him love the sounds on the these newly discovered synths how weird is huh. that that's a little weird yeah. <laughs> can, I t- can i tack on something to that sure. uh, so gary you know he he didn't even realize like these moog uh keyboards and everything existed he was just in a recording studio and I guess how it goes is uh, he was in the recording studio to record some music and someone was there before him recording and just left one of these keyboards and he didn't even know what it was. And he literally just pushed a button on it and the noise it made was this deep, loud, like like deep sound. And that's what sparked this idea in his head to make music. And he says, how lucky was it that he randomly hit a button and whoever was there before him had this thing programmed to go deep because if it was like a high pitched noise, he probably would have been like, yeah, this is stupid. And just like kept going wow. like completely random. Like, wow. he, I think that's probably another reason the critics hated him in the beginning. Cause like he, like you said earlier, Matt, like he wrote cars on a bass. He literally said that he opened the, the case of the bass. It was the first thing he ever played. It was like, I wrote that song in like an hour. So like yeah. he admitted that like, this is easy for me or not, not easy for him, but dumb. So, he kind of took the piss off himself from the beginning. And I think that's why a lot of the critics didn't like it in the beginning. It makes me think about, and I mean, we could, we could debate this for ever, but like, you know, being a kid who was growing up in the TRL days. Right. And it's like, back then I listened to my new metal and my punk and my ska. So like anything that had the word pop associated with it was like, Oh, that's cheap. That's, you know, like NSYNC's garbage. That's just manufactured pop music. 
now I can look back at it and be like, man, the, the production on this and the songwriting on this is incredible. And I feel like that is just, you know, history repeats itself in the world of pop music. It is like at the time that it's the number one thing somewhere when it's topping the charts, critics and, and you know, naysayers alike are like, this is trash. People are going to forget about this. You're already seeing it happen with like, you know, 10 years ago, mumble rap. And now like you look back at some of those songs and go, actually, these songs are pretty tight. <laughs> like, these songs were pretty good. Like, I feel like it's just human instinct to hate something that works that's slightly different and puts you out of your comfort zone and then years later it gets re reevaluated and I, I think notice all, is important i've <laughs> noticed in my own life and i don't know if you guys noticed this but that i think great art a lot of times i will dislike it at first and then it grows on me and becomes becomes some of my favorite ever i've you, you brought him up earlier, Matt, the streets. The first time I heard the streets, I was like, oh, my God, I hate this. What? A couple years later, oh, Mike Skinner is one of my favorite artists of all time, you know? And yeah. I felt that way about a lot of my favorite artists. It's just I maybe I'm not ready for it or uh, or there's something deeper in it that you have to repeated listens are necessary to get further into it. Whereas something that's sugary and catches your attention, and you like it right off the bat might lose its appeal real quick. And uh, I don't yeah. think I'm the only one who's ever experienced something like that. You know, I think well, that's talking about stuff that doesn't lose its appeal real quick. Matt, tell us about all the stuff that you've been working yeah, on and dude. where people can go. Check wow. It out. What a transition. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was a, a crazy segue. I want to say, uh, for, first of all, for anyone listening, please Matt Gondek, G O N D E K. Dot com. You got to go look at it. Matt, I've known your, I, I, this is what I want to tell. I've known your art before I knew your name. So same to you. I mean, I've, I grew up knowing of your band and I had play and nice. yeah, this is nice. funny to like, look at you in the face and talk to you, but yeah, cool, man. We have, we're both from Pittsburgh. Yeah. Uh, about a hundred years ago, I was at a party and punchlines drummer took the girl I was with away from me. And I'm very upset about it. What? I don't even, I don't even know Which his name, drummer? dude. I, just, uh, I just remember this like, Oh, that's the punchline drummer. I'm like, Oh, well F that guy. Oh. I don't even know the dude. I'm not, I, I don't even know. It was like, I was like <laughs> fucking 12 years old. It's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I mean, probably PJ. Oh, PJ, what are you uh, doing? Yeah, you know, Erica. Oh. Erica got away from me. Oh. It's totally fine. It's just, but that's what I associate you in my head because I don't know you. But yeah. yeah, dude. Um, thank you. I'm an artist. I, I, I moved away from Pittsburgh. I live in LA. I, like, I'm a fine artist. I, a lot of gallery shows all over the world. I do a podcast. It's called Clean Break. It's a podcast about art and business. So. You know, growing up, uh, I didn't know how to make art or, or I didn't know how to sell art to make money from it. But fortunately, just throughout through, through time and experience, I learned. So we do a podcast where I interview some of the top artists on earth and ask them how they made it and try to break it down and share with young artists so they can make it too. It's called cleanbreakpodcast.com. And then I also paint. That's, dude, your art is incredible by the way i mean Thank i'm not you. just saying that because you're our guest today what i've been uh so you are considered a deconstructive pop artist correct yes which yes. which to, for people that are listening that that aren't currently on your website to look at and and understand what that means what 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 does that mean okay yeah so layman's terms deconstructive pop artist what is pop art pop art is what's current right so think of like a cartoon you like, like Mickey Mouse or Bart Simpson, I deconstruct those things. So my paintings are, you know, of, of characters, you know, blowing up or decomposing or and pulled apart, not in a gory way, but just, they're just falling apart. Right. Uh, I, I have a whole rabbit hole about the art behind it and the meaning behind it, but like, that's the layman term for people, but it's very bright, very bold artwork, a lot of like thick black outlines and just very attention grabbing. Yeah, I dude, I was also really impressed. I wish I would have been able to go there and see it, but your fight club exhibit at the Warhol museum in Pittsburgh. When oh, I yeah. saw what that, so 300 spiked baseball bats, correct? Yeah. Yeah. That actually was in New York. I, oh, I did a project. Yeah. The, the fight club was 300 spiked baseball bats. We handmade them. They're all different colors. The spiked baseball bats, like a metaphor for my work. I grew up in like a lot of punk rock bands and loving that stuff. And you look at a, a spike pace baseball bat, and you kind of get that vibe. And then with the neon colors I use, I painted every bat with those. So it just kind of sets a precedent for what I'm into. 
I did a, a project with the Warhol last year. I was like part of their advertising campaign. So I was on a bunch of billboards in the city, which is great. Cause I got to come home and like hang out with Rick and the, the Warhol team and finally just like kind of get my foot in the door there. Cause I've been wanting to work with them in some capacity since I left. And that was kind of my first, you know, first foray with them. It's probably the absolute coolest possible thing you can do if you're in Pittsburgh is to be, you know, work with, be associated with the Warhol Museum. So yeah, uh, dude, I mean, I, obviously I was, I'm a huge fan of Warhol and everything yeah. that he did. And it was just an honor to, to do that. You know, I mean, I've been dreaming about that particular project since I was like a kid. So it was really cool. It's really, really awesome. I saw that your, your paintings and sculptures have been featured in exhibitions everywhere from, you know, LA, New York, Paris, Bangkok, Hong Kong, Korea, Singapore. Dude, that is so badass. That is so freaking cool. Thanks, man. Appreciate and, it. Uh, yeah, thank you. Love to see a Pittsburgher thriving out in the world. Hey, I know you're in LA, but you're still a Pittsburgher, man. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I, I, I really, I, I still feel it. No, I am. I'm very East Coast. We're claiming you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. I'm, I'm happy about that. I'll, I'll, I'll stick Pittsburgh. Hell yeah, man. Well, hey, we all said thunder on Gary Newman. And uh, thanks so much for coming on today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Are there enough to return myself? This one's defective, it's there on the shelf I tried it, I liked it, but it must be bad timing Cause now I don't think that it's boding well The back This has been One Hit Thunder One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Fafalios of the band's Punchline Pack and Another Cheetah and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net Underneath me, you're hearing Dead When It Hits the Shelves off the Punchline album Lion. Be sure to check out punchline.com for any upcoming news with the band. Our podcast is on Patreon now, so find us at patreon.com backslash OHT podcast for early access to the episodes, bonus chats, and a chance to vote on future songs. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on any podcasting app, and tune in next week for more One Hit Thunder. this thing is apart. Is this how you made it, or I desecrated something that was created in the stars? I want to be a realist, but is that the realist? Yeah, I'm here still holding, keeping cool, like strolling, look closely, I'm rolling off a cliff. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, what's up? This is Blake Wyland. I'm the host of the Tone Mob podcast. It's a show where I interview guitar people about guitar stuff. We talk about their pedals, their amps, their accessories, their preferences, all that stuff, as well as a healthy dose of whatever comes up. Topics have ranged from aliens to addiction and anywhere in between. Oh yeah, and pizza. We're definitely going to be talking about pizza. So get the show wherever you're listening to this podcast at. Just search The Tone Mob in your search bar and it will pop right up. Come join us. We're having a lot of fun. Thanks for checking it out.